Well, amen. Children, you will find in the normal place tonight your words for this evening that you are listening for. Those words are greed and money, possessions, rich, uh, the two words anxious and anxiety, uh, value, treasure, and heart. Okay? Those are the words for this evening. Uh, Shortly uh, after my uh, mother and father's divorce uh, back in 73, uh, mom and I scraped together all that we could, all the change that we could find in our house, and we uh, went to a local restaurant that was popular in uh, north central or north north central United States. Some of you may have run into it at some time or another called Howard Johnson's. And uh, we went to Howard Johnson's because they were known, they were famous for their chocolate sundaes. And those chocolate sundaes came in a very large stem um, bowl, okay? It had a, had a bowl and then a stem on it. And uh, full, full of ice cream, chocolate syrup, nuts, whipped cream, and a cherry on top. Uh, and the waitress brought it out set it in the middle of the booth that we were sitting in. She gave us the two long-handled spoons uh, and and a stack of napkins, and then she says, enjoy. And I grab my spoon, and I'm ready to to dig in, and before I can even get my spoon in the ice cream, Mom says, she says, Chris, define enough. Now, I'm eight, nine years old, (laughs) Um, and that's the question that I get from her. Now, I got that question um, because being a single mom, right, and, and her being a church secretary of all things, uh, her meager salary uh, was not much, thus the word meager. Uh, she was not only working full time, but she was uh, going to school at night, trying to finish her college education, and I was too young to uh, help in any way, and so we had to make it on uh, what little we had, but we always had enough. I look back on those days, as you can imagine, and and maybe some of you share um, a similar experience, but I look back on that, of course, with mixed emotions, but I know as difficult as those times were, the Lord was gracious And he taught me a lot, which I carry with me even today. So let me ask you, maybe you can look back on this time as I ask you, define enough. Define enough. Merriam-Webster defines it this way. Uh, It's an adjective, or can be used as an adjective, and it means occurring in such quantity quality or scope as to be fully, uh, as to fully meet demands, needs, or expectations. It can also be used as an adverb. It means in or to a degree or quantity that satisfies or that is sufficient or necessary for satisfaction fully or in a tolerable degree. It can also be used as a pronoun. It, it means a sufficient number or quantity or amount. Synonyms include adequate, satisfactory, sufficient, and suitable. And of course, antonyms include inadequate, insufficient, 
and unsatisfactory. Now, I, I start there, I begin there more, for, more than for an English lesson. I, I begin there because how we answer that first question, how we define enough, will determine how we answer the next three questions that we're going to encounter as we walk through this passage that Matt just read. And those questions are, are you rich toward God? Are you anxious? And where is your heart? So before we go any further, let's go to the Lord in prayer, as is our custom. Uh, Father, by your Spirit, would you grant power to the preaching of your Word? Would you give us ears to hear and eyes to see? Would you grant us all the ability to appraise and apprehend the truth of your Word? Awaken our attention and, Father, tonight convict us and challenge us. And then we do ask that you would refresh us and encourage us and comfort us through the gospel. As always, I am weak and needy for this task to which you've called me, so I ask for your support and strength and the filling of your spirit that I might be a pure channel of your grace. Would you allow me to communicate clearly and with fervency and fluently and with grace for the sake of Christ and His church? And I pray these things. Amen. The outline is in the back of your bulletin where it normally is, and there are three things we're going to look at tonight in our passage. The first is uh, matters of value, the second is matters of relationship, and then finally, matters of the heart. Okay, matters of value, matters of relationship, and matters of the heart. And so we'll begin with matters of value. Um, having just addressed, if you haven't been with us, um, we are in the midst of this study of Luke, and Last week, having just addressed the disciples uh, regarding the danger of spiritual hypocrisy and how to combat it, someone from the crowd uh, doesn't ask a question but makes uh, a demand, makes a demand of Jesus. He, he wants Jesus to do what was a normal practice for rabbis at the time, and he wanted him to be an arbitrator. He wanted him to come and to, and, and to make a decision uh, between he and his brother. The brother was the uh, executor of, of the family inheritance that had been left by the father, and the problem was he wasn't uh, exercising his responsibility, and so he hadn't uh, divided the money as it was supposed to be divided. And this brother, this other brother, wants his share and so he's not, really not even asking Jesus to be an impartial judge. He wants Jesus to rule on his side, and he wants his money, and he wants it now. And as Dale Ralph Davis points out, the man simply wanted Jesus to solve his problem, not change his heart. Jesus, of course, addresses the latter. Uh, Jesus responds straightforwardly, as he always does, and he said he had more significant things to do than to serve as this arbitrator within this family matter. He had, or he would at one point come to judge, but he hadn't come to judge now. And while he will say later, just later on in this chapter, that he has come and in, and in his coming will, 
will create division rather than peace within the family, He's not going to do it now. There is something else that is more important. And so He uses the man's demand to address the crowd. We said that He was going to do this on His way to Jerusalem. And so He does this and He addresses the crowd and He says very clearly, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness. Obviously, this man has been walking along with them, and so he's heard Jesus talk about the importance of standing firm, uh, of of, uh, standing firm in the in the face of opposition. He's heard him talking about spiritual hypocrisy. He's he's heard him talk about the necessity of acknowledging him before men. But he's so intent on getting the money that he believes he deserves. That he's allowed everything that Jesus has said to go in one ear and out the other. And Jesus uses this this opportunity to illustrate exactly what he said was going to happen back in verses 2 and 3. And what he does is he reveals what has been covered up. He makes known that which was hidden. He brings to light that which was in the dark. And he announces in public what had only been spoken in, inside that man's house. And he reveals the man's sin of covetousness or greed. He had this insatiable desire for money, and it was consuming him. He had this deep craving for that inheritance, even though he didn't need it. In his mind, he didn't have enough. And he wanted more. And Jesus took the opportunity not only to warn him against his greed of money, but also for just covetousness in general. He addresses all covetousness. Because money was just one of many things that if he or we aren't careful, they can be over-desired and become idols that we pursue. We chase after them and left unchecked, it can distract us from what is truly important and from what is necessary, and it can create discord and division within relationships and also distort reality in general. And then he says, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Life isn't about having excess amounts or super abundant surpluses of things. There's more to life than getting our hands on stuff and and getting as much as we can possibly get our hands on and, and owning more and having more. Because in time, if we're not careful, that which we desire to possess will ultimately begin to possess us and lead us to do things that we might not otherwise do to possess them. In other words, they become idols. Not to mention the fact that the more we possess, the more time and the more physical and emotional and mental energy we consume to get them and to take care of them. And to illustrate the point, Jesus tells a parable. There's a rich farmer, and it's and the farmer no doubt worked hard, as all farmers do. But it's interesting that, that Jesus describes him, 
or, or describes not him, but the land as a good piece of land that produced crops throughout the season. Um, it wasn't his hard work that was producing, or, or what the, for, it wasn't his hard work that caused the land to produce what it produced. And one year the land produced so much that he couldn't put it all in his barns and silos. And so he begins to think to himself, what shall I do? And that question is a good question. And it, one commentator said it points out that this man was a forward thinker. He, was, uh, he had practical wisdom and he was ready to take decisive action. The problem was, while all of those things were positive, he also lacked gratitude and was selfish. Even if he was talking to himself, some say that, well, he was talking to himself and he was inside his own head and so that, that explains the number of eyes and mys in, in what he was saying. But I think even if he was talking to himself, there's an overabundance of eyes and mys and it's a pretty good indicator that he was really just self-absorbed. Everything was about himself, and he didn't give God any credit for the fertile land or the rain or, or the, plenty, the, the plentiful crop, nor did he think at any point to give away what he had. And in his commentary, Philip Ryken quotes Augustine, who said, the bellies of the poor would have been much safer storehouses than the farmer's barns. But he ultimately decided to tear down the barns that he had, and build new and bigger ones. And Jesus tells us why he did that. He did it so that he could sit back, relax, eat, drink, and be merry. And not just until it was time for the next crop to be sown. It was so that he could do it for many years. He was, he was setting himself up for an early retirement. So he not only lacked gratitude and was selfish, he was also overindulgent. He was gratifying his own wants and desires. He was also overconfident because thinking he had, he, he thought he had all the time in the world to enjoy what he had amassed. He thought he had all the time in the world for, for his money and possessions and, and that those money and possessions guaranteed a long and happy and prosperous life. He didn't stop at any point to think that time was fleeting. He didn't stop to think that he should think about the life to come. It was all about his assumption that he was secure in the here and in the now. But in verse 20, Jesus says that the man was rudely awakened because his life, at least as far as he was concerned, was cut short. Jesus said, God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? He was foolish because he wasn't thinking about God. He was foolish because he hadn't thought about the potential danger of his actions or his thoughts and beliefs and actions. His life, he wasn't thinking that his life was not in his hands. The length of his life was not in his hands, but in the hands of a sovereign God. And the call 
of death was made by Him alone, as life and death are for all men. Job reminds us, he says, our days are determined and the numbers of our months is with the Lord. And He has appointed our limits that we cannot pass. As we'll read in a minute, anxiety or being anxious cannot add a single hour to our lives because nothing can be added to the hours of our life. And he was being overly confident by believing that he would always have tomorrow to enjoy all of his, all of his stuff that he had accumulated. No one had ever told him that he, could t- he couldn't take it with him. And if they did, he simply didn't listen. He wasn't interested. So in the end, this... This man, this farmer, had a false sense of security. He had a false sense of time. He had a false sense of purpose. He had a false sense of control. And he thought his purpose was just to to collect and store up and, and enjoy all that he collected and stored up. It was it was his it was his pleasure to enjoy all to do all three, and he, and he believed he had the t- all the time in the world to do all three. He also had a false sense of value, believing that, that his material wealth and his, his possessions mattered more than his soul. And if he was thinking at any point along the line that everything that he had would somehow earn his way into eternity, well, the truth was he was just sadly mistaken. And in verse 21, Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In other words, this is not an isolated incident. This really isn't just about the man who made the original demand. This isn't about the farmer. This is about Everyone, this is about everyone who deals with greed and covetousness. This has to do with all of us. And it's really not even about the, it's it's not even about the wealth and the possessions in and of themselves. It's about the short-sightedness, it's about the lack of gratitude, it's about selfishness, it's about overindulgence and overconfidence, it's about laying up treasures for ourselves. And we ask ourselves, well, who isn't a fool? And and we know we can look at this and and we realize that the one who isn't a fool, or, or who is the one that, that is rich toward God? And it's the one who is thinking long-term rather than short-term. It's the one who is thinking eternally rather than temporally. It's the one that's thinking or acknowledging, or a, the one who is acknowledging and is grateful toward God from whom all blessings flow. The one who is rich toward God is the one who desires to meet the needs of others rather than 
accumulate excess and surplus for themselves. It's the one whose stewardship reflects a desire to glorify God. Listen to these words from Kent Hughes. He says, we can enlarge our savings and build huge accounts to hold it all. We can plan our retirement so we will have nothing to do but change positions in the sun. We can plan our menus for the twilight years so that nothing but the finest cuisine crosses our lips. We can live as if this is all of life. We can laugh our way to the grave only to discover at the end that we have nothing and are in God's eyes fools. Or, or we can be rich toward God because we gave and gave and gave. Do you see your excess as that which God has given you to give to others? How generous are you with what you have? What is your attitude toward that which you don't have? Are you rich toward God? That's the first question. Jesus moves from there to matters of relationship in verses 22 to 30. And I say that because while everything that he is about to say builds upon and actually elaborates on what he's just said, uh, we see him, uh, he's now changed his attention from the crowd as a whole to his disciples. So he's no longer addressing everyone, though they're still within earshot, but he's addressing his disciples who have a different relationship with God, right? We've learned that he is their, he's, he is their father. And so in verse 22, he says this, therefore, and there's the connection between what is a, he's about to say with what he's just said. He says, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on, for life is more than food and the body more than clothing. He knew that his disciples had just heard that being rich toward God meant being willing to give things away. And that obviously, as it may have for many of us, it elicits questions and they had already begun in their minds. Questions like, well, how much do I dare keep? How much do I give? Or how much do I dare keep? Do I give everything away? Will I, will I go hungry? Will I have enough to take care of my basic needs? And what about my family? He knew their, their level of anxiety had begun to rise as it often does when we're confronted with our sin. And so he, he jumps in immediately to answer those questions, and he says, look, don't be anxious. Don't worry. There's more to life than merely surviving. There are other things in life that you should be more concerned about than what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear because those basic needs are going to be taken care of. 
The Father's going to take care of them. You see, anxiety, anxiety fails to add an hour to our lives because it, anxiety doesn't add anything to our life. Anxiety simply takes away from life. Anxiety steals our hope and our joy. It robs us of peace and rest. It undermines our trust and confidence. It breeds discouragement and discontent. It thwarts our obedience and sabotages our health. It's detrimental to our souls. And to combat it, Jesus did what he did back in verses 6 and 7. And he argues from lesser to greater. And he uses two examples, right? He uses ravens and lilies. This is the second bird example. He used the last one last week. Ravens were not only considered unclean by the law, there was uh, an ancient belief that they were also lazy, or there's this ancient image that they're lazy. And Jesus said, look, ravens don't have barns, they don't have storehouses, and yet God feeds them. And then he says, of how much more value are you than birds? Lilies were wildflowers, right? They just, they just grew. And of course, you know, they, they didn't work. They had a short lifespan. And yet Jesus says that God has arrayed them with beauty that far surpassed the finest of King Solomon's garments. And then he says the same thing. How much more will he clothe you? And then he says this. O you of little faith. O you of little faith. Where were those questions coming from? What was the source of their anxiety? It was coming from a lack of faith. They had been preoccupied with their circumstances rather than remaining focused on what they knew to be true regardless of their circumstances. Their minds had been, become distracted and they had been, their attention had been drawn away from what they knew to be true about God. So to correct it, he tells them to think. Consider, be mindful of what is true. And what was true was that even though they may not live in the lap of luxury, and even though they might be uncomfortable and even suffer, right? He's been, he's been telling them that as they move toward Jerusalem. He says, look, your, your needs will all be supplied. I'm going to take care of you. you. You will always be taken care of. And this is where the matter, matters of relationship comes in. Look at verse 30. He says, for all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek His kingdom, and all these things will be added to you. Why was all of this true? Why was everything that He had just shared to them, why was that true? Because God was their Father, and they were His children. 
They were in a special relationship. And therefore, they weren't to act like others. They weren't to act like non-Christians. They weren't to act like non-believers. They were to be different. They weren't to seek after and set their hearts on the things of the world or to become overly concerned with the things of the world. They were to set their hearts on the promises of their heavenly Father. They were to set their hearts on the kingdom of God first and foremost, before and above all things. Because if they set their hearts on worldly cares and concerns, in the words of Jesus from the Gospel of Matthew, they may gain the whole world, but they would forfeit their souls. But if they set their hearts on pursuing and submitting to His rule and reign where they live and work and worship, they would not only not forfeit their souls, but all of their needs would be met. And in verse verse 32, He shares the most comforting words of all. He says, fear not, little flock. For it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. He said the kingdom isn't something to be earned. The kingdom isn't something to be built. It's something that's received. The kingdom is something that's received, and those who receive it, he tenderly describes as a little flock. Right? He describes them as a flock of sheep who... Psalm 23 describes as those who will be fed, protected, provided for, led, hemmed in from all sides, and will flourish under the shepherd's care. And as a father, notice he says that God just doesn't give the kingdom, right? He just doesn't give... uh, his kingdom or his assent of approval of the giving of the kingdom, but he joyfully gives them the kingdom. It is his pleasure to give the kingdom. Therefore, they have nothing to fear. Absolutely nothing. Brothers and sisters, listen to these words of Philip Ryken. When we worry We deny God's promises that He will give us whatever we truly need. We deny His wisdom, not trusting that He fully appreciates the difficulties of our situation. We deny His goodness, not believing that He has our best interests at heart. We deny His sovereignty, not waiting for Him to provide what we need in His own good time. Our anxiety is a direct attack on the godness of God as it relates to the needs of our own daily lives. This means that the remedy for all our fearful worries is more faith in our faithful God. As soon as we start to feel anxious, we need to stop thinking about our troubles and start thinking about the character of God, His wisdom, His goodness, His sovereignty, And all the promises He has made to us in Christ. So the questions I must ask are these. 
Do you trust the Lord to keep His promises? Are you content? Do you agree with the Father that what you have is enough? Or are you anxious? And that leads to our last point, matters of the heart. In verses 33 and 34, Jesus said this, Sell your possessions, give to the needy, provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. He's been moving in this direction the whole time. Right? He's landing the plane, so to speak. And rather than take the time to carefully explain uh, all that he doesn't mean, I simply want to explain what he does mean. Rather than take the time to try to qualify uh, his statements, I- I'm not going to take time to qualify his statements because he doesn't qualify his statements. He says other things in other places, and, and we know other things from other places in Scripture, but we'll deal with those when we get, come to those. Very simply tonight, he simply says, sell your stuff and give it to less fortunate. He didn't say sell it all, but he did say the opposite of hoarding was radical generosity. And in the context of what he had said prior, we know that he's talking about giving away all that was in excess, right? That which was excess, that which was super abundantly beyond what anyone needed, the surplus of their possessions, it was more than than enough. Rather than accumulate He wanted them to use the means the Father had graciously given them to take care of others. Wealth and possessions is not the issue. It's about the attitude regarding those things. And he said, when they give it away, as they gave it away, they would be making an investment in heaven. For each and every gift they gave to others, they would be storing up treasure in heaven, and that treasure was being kept in purses that didn't grow old, and their handles wouldn't break, and they would never be out of style. Right? The money they gave would be put in accounts that crooked financial advisors couldn't skim off the top. No one would take it. Nothing would destroy it. And then he said, the truth of the matter is, what you do with what God has given you is not always a matter of faith or trust. Sometimes it's just simply a matter of your heart. If your heart is directed toward the things of the earth, that's where your treasure is going to be. If your heart is directed toward things of heaven and the things of God, that is where your treasure will be. So if you want to know where your heart is, follow the treasure. It will lead you right to it. 
I don't think I need to apply that. I think we'll all do that for ourselves. I'm just going to ask, ask the question, where's your heart? We struggle with passages like these, don't we? You're just hearing it for the first time. I've been dealing with this all week. <laughs> and we don't like them because they lay us bare. They expose our hearts. They expose our idols. But hear the good news tonight. What we invest on earth is always threatened at some point with a loss of value. The market could crash at any moment. The housing bubble could burst at any moment. Thieves could break in. They could be breaking in right now, taking everything you own. And we could be called home at any moment. But what's invested in heaven is safe and secure no matter what may come our way. The call from Jesus is a call out of spiritual poverty into spiritual wealth and richness toward God. He has lavished us with super abundance, with a, with a super abundance of love and grace and the good gifts of salvation that include, but aren't limited to, the forgiveness of our sin, the freedom from the guilt of our sin, redemption from sin and death, and a ledger of perfect righteousness credited to our account, and an adoption into the family of God. All in and through our Lord Jesus Christ who lived, died, and rose again. In Paul's words, though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we, by his poverty, might become rich. But even more than that, right, the, the cherry on that Howard Johnson Sunday is that he has given us more material blessings than we can count. Well beyond the good gifts of the basics of life. So we must be honest and ask the question, how much more do we think He should give us? How much more do we think we need? How much more would be enough? Brothers and sisters, we have absolutely everything that we need in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are not lacking. So out of that surplus, an excess of love and grace and good gifts of salvation and creation that are all ours in Him, we can and should be rich toward God. Again, words from Pastor Riken. 
His glory can be our highest goal. His worship our deepest joy. And His fellowship our greatest satisfaction. We can offer offer all our abilities for His work without reservation. We can take time to serve people in need. We can make needs of the poor a priority in our giving and embrace lifestyles that give us more freedom for ministry. We can decide to live without some things so we can give more to others. We can give and give until all we are and all we have is dedicated to Him. May that be so. Let's pray together. Father, we thank You for this time. And we would ask by Your Spirit and grace that You would enable us to receive the Word with faith and love, lay it up in our hearts, and practice it in our lives. Water the hearts of those who have heard Your Word preached, and may the seed sown in weakness be raised in power and show forth fruit of righteousness. For Your glory and for our good and for the sake of Christ and His church, I pray these things. Amen.